I don't want to be the best food. I don't want to be the best thing. But I want to be Ian Botham, the best all-rounder. The thing that drives me more than anything else is community, humans, connection to humans, and learning through food than the history and geography of those things. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Building a brand can give you the ability to branch out into other areas and explore new and exciting initiatives. For renowned chef Matt Wilkinson, the solid foundation of successful hospitality businesses has springboarded him into a raft of exciting food offerings, not just in hospitality. Matt, how are you going? Not really good, Hookers. How are things? Good, mate. Good. You've done a lot of things and incredible stuff in the hospitality space, but um, I never had you down as a spice rub guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, a spice girl, maybe, but not a spice rub. <laughs> um, mate, I, I, me neither. Um, and uh, it came to fruition from me actually closing the OG Pope Joan in uh, Brunswick. Um, I started actually working with a lot of uh, waste products, wanting to create a biofuel, uh, either charcoal or smoking pellets. Um, and I nailed it. So I was like, that's how, you know, um, I got in contact with Four Pillars. I was working with Cobram Estate, um, uh, Montague's Orchards, um, this cherry farm, a citrus farm, and basically taking waste product from manufacturing um, uh, uh, produce and, uh, drying it and then pressing it with um, kiln-dried recycled timber for these pellets. So, you know, for example, you'd be smoking with apple, not apple wood, so it was the skins of the apple. Um, so I did all the R&D in <laughs> classic chef-wise of not knowing anything. And this is why good companies do well. Like they do the research of what that market place is and the, the the dollar value around it so i had a meeting with some friends of friends of, from bunnings and they're like matt like it's you might make 40 grand for the year <laughs> and i'm like yeah maybe a bit too advanced and you know then there's the the traders of the world um doing these different flavored pellets but just it was like a lot of competitive markets so a friend said well why don't you look at rubs and i'll be honest with you the low and slow barbecue movement wasn't is it my cup of tea? I don't know if you remember, I did, this, I did the summer camp cookouts and that was all over fire. It was this classic 40-gal drum that was welded together with a half flat plate, half grill and other barrels just all out the back of Pope Joan. And I love cooking off a fire. Like Alan Snaith, Warialda, the beef company, I chopped wood off of his land, um, didn't know anything about seasoned and treated <laughs> woods. It was a smoke fest, but just loved it. Um, so I didn't want to make a rub that was low and slow. So I found them all very sugary, salty, a lot of uh, MSG in a lot of them. And what I just looked at was the different worlds of flavors and the barbecues around the world, a bit like sandwiches. You know, there's a sandwich for every country. Well, there's a barbecue in style for every country in the world, even even England. Um, it might be in the garage over gas and a bit of sausage, but it's, uh, it's basically a, not even a posh um bunning sausage sizzle anyway so i went into it and looked at where i traveled in the world and connections and went with street barbecue which is so it's rubs marinade seasonings from flavors of the world um street off the street of barbecue 
That's wild. A, give us give us a sense of the different flavors or different countries, and are there sort of pork cuts that work with some of them as well? Yeah, well, it's 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 amazing because like I so I've developed twenty three flavors, and then we launch we launch with seven, and um, the 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 different ones like so the um, so I've got this Mumbai ticker. So the Mumbai ticker is actually a, a recipe from actually in within Mumbai, a goat and uh, a, a goat butcher, right? And he was he had this live goat in uh, the square in the Catholic uh, precinct area of uh, Mumbai. And what I didn't understand was like, was he a goat seller? Well, it was a live goat. He slaughtered it straight away, butchered it, and then was cooking it, right? Um, and then next door had there was a, a pork butcher and uh that was that was a, a a sight to see i must admit um that one i'll never forget so this mumbai ticker is based around marinating either with yogurt so you're adding that alkaline element and um preservative almost um that you marinate with pork or with um uh, goat or lamb but the pork especially is it's rubbed in and you hold it um whether it's diced and then you can make that into a curry or barbecue um, one of the great ones is uh, a Tuscan rob, so based off of um, flat, uh, bashed out like pork chop, um, uh, and just sprinkled on one side, grilled, and then flipped, and that is stunning. And that is that, it's that classic Tuscan um, paprika, oregano, garlic, salt, touch of sugar, and a couple of the bits and pieces in there. Um, but the, the one for pork, which um, I think everyone would remember when, if they've ever been to Hong Kong, is the smell of barbecue, and it's it's barbecue pork. Um, it's black bean, it's barbecue, and then there's also the Peking duck. And I wanted to I wanted to develop two Hong Kong ones and one more in Mackay, the the island, uh, which is absolute pork heaven. You know, just the the little trickling over small coals of this sugary bread tinged pork belly um is, is is a memory i'll last forever so i developed these this I, I wanted to get this barbecue pork mixed with kind of like uh peking duck and we we're working on them and none of them were, were there so i had this barbecue pork uh, uh black bean and this hoisin as the two and i went oh bugger it I'll just mix the two together <laughs> and it worked like like it's it's if you if you sprinkle it on and you go direct with pork onto the barbecue it burns because of the sugar but that is one of the main things in um it's like offset barbecue so you can if you slightly smoke say pork ribs um uh or even pork neck um born in or born out um in a in a smoker for like a couple of hours and then you season this on and then set it for another half an hour and then um apply a heap more of the hong kong barbecue uh, rub on um a little bit of water or you know you can have some uh, cider or a little bit of wine verjuice or water and then wrap it and then you cook it for two more hours and then you just set it again for the last half an hour with a little extra rub in the barbecue mate it comes out and you carve it and you're like I'm, I'm actually, like, where am I in Hong Kong? Am I in Kowloon or am I on the island? Like, it, and it, like, it was just one of those, you know, those memories of the, the drop. And that one is the pork, uh, the pork master one, I, I think. And then, of course, 
you have asado. Um, so asado being a, a cooking term, um, it's it's based off all around Brazil. You know, in, in different areas of Brazil, they do different types of asado with different meats, whether it's chicken, beef, lamb. Um, but one of them they do a lot is 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 pork, and this is the base seasoning to sprinkle on um, before and rub it in with oil, and then as soon as it's cooked, you season with it as well. And I, I love that one. Well, it's interesting to hear you sort of say that you're not really a low and slow sort of um, barbecue cook, but you do love cooking over fire. What, what's, what's some of the tips you have for that sort of faster cooking, um, particularly of pork over, over a flame that's not low and slow? So my one thing with pork, I'll take like a, a classic pork chop, whether that's got the bone on or not. So, you know, that can come from anywhere from a strip loin all the way through to the scotch. Even, even like my favorite is the neck chop, right? The great thing about pork is if it's cooked properly, um, there is still juice there. And somehow you've got to capsulate that juice, right? That juice to me is started talking about meat vinaigrettes. So as you're carving it on the board, you or it's you want to be collecting that and mix it. So, my biggest tip is if you're going hard and fast, and that means um, like a ceramic grill, like a primo, like really like open it up, get the get one side absolutely blaring with charcoal, right? And or even if it's your gas burner, get it on like you know those crappy little uh, gas webbers, right? Get it smoking hot. Season one side of the chop, right? and then straight on the grill and leave it on there and then turn down the heat. So if, if you're in a grill, people always go, well, how can you turn down the coals? Well, you open it all up or you can just shovel out the coals, okay? So it's not, it is a bit like, like cooking over fire, and I learned this the hard way is, <laughs> you've always got to look after it. It's very easy to lower it. It's very hard to get it back going again <laughs> quickly without a lot of blowing or fanning. So back to that pork chop, you put it on and then you disperse thing and you cook it just on one side and only seasoned on one side. Go as long as you can, just, you know, shovel it around, turn it um, 90 degrees, 180 degrees, another 90 degrees, Keep but keep it on that one side. Make sure the heat's thing. And then just before you're about to serve or when it's, just before it's ready, you know, the, the coloring of the pork changes and it starts to get this caramely brownness, you know, and everyone goes, is, is, is pork, is it, is it pink? Is it white meat? Is it dark meat? Like which one is it, right? And it, it's, it's, to me, it's unique purely to its own. Um, and it is to me that pink, um, and I've had some amazing pork dishes around the world, especially in Spain, where they, you know, serving pork, medium rare, but it's cooked all the way through, so it's over 63 degrees, but there's still a little bit of pink in it, is really a must for me. But as soon as it starts to raise up, it's a little bit caramelized on the bottom, you can see it's raising up, and it's that, that pinkness is turning to white and grey, then flip it over, cook it hard, so get the, increase the temperature again, and just sizzle it and then take it off and let it rest. Let it rest on the plate, put it onto a board, carve, put it back onto the plate and all those meat juices, I then sprinkle a bit more, if we're using the Tuscan, a bit more Tuscan on there, I might chop some tomatoes through it, a uh, squeeze of lemon juice, some um, Australian extra virgin um, olive oil, and you've got there the perfect pork steak for me from the barbecue. And quite often or not, people overcook it, but you... You just want it just, just, just cooked. And if intense heat first, lower it down, intense to finish, 
and then uh, rest, carve, away you go. You've done so many things, and it's hard to sort of pinpoint all of them, but there's like a wives' tale or a fable, or I don't even know if it's true, about the gin pig. You, you were the creative director at Four Pillars um, for a while. Is the gin pig a real thing? It, it was a real thing. Um, unfortunately, so that was, um, I actually did the first gin pig dinner at uh, Pope Joan. I reckon this is back 2017. No, it was earlier than that. It has to be earlier than that. 2014, 15. Let's, let's call it 2015 for fun. Um, and what they were, they were um, uh, Berkshire cross uh, saddleback pigs in the Yarra Valley that part of their diet was uh, the botanicals um, fed um, from the stills. Um, and what it was at the, now it's no longer a thing. Like I I actually shouldn't talk about it. I'll get in trouble, but never mind. Cam, Stu, I'm sorry, Matt, I'm sorry. Um, it was an amazing thing and it just, we ended up falling out with the elements. It just, it got bigger than what it should have been and how, which way it went to go. But the, the pigs were fed a botanical. Now, any pig farmers out there know that pigs, eat certain things, won't eat certain things, but then anything that's hungry will eat everything. Um, They love munching on the um, star anise and the um, cardamom and the coriander. But unfortunately, they didn't really like the juniper. So we looked at, we ended up making some pig feed with with the dry botanicals through it, uh, and then they munched it. And what it did is, I think, if you think, you know, the original Wagyu when they fed it fermented beer grains, it's not so much obviously the flavour going through, but there was there's, there's high levels of magnesium, some um, and potassium within um, the leftover botanicals, um, and that was imparting and just made the meat really beautiful and and uh, succulent. Um, there were special pigs. Yeah, take us back to when you were when you were young. Your accent gives away kind of where you grew up. But, uh, t- tell us about Geelong. <laughs> yeah, different suburbs, uh, Sydney. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, tell us about sort of food in your family growing up. What sort of role did it play? So I'm actually from the pig capital of England. Um, yeah. Um, uh, so Yorkshire um, base, is based off of a triangle of beer rhubarb and pigs so i don't know if you knew that like the the big english white is a or the yorkshire clusters yorkshire ham um uh is uh so the idea was that the breweries you know the tetlers the tadcasters the sam smiths the john smiths the leftover brew was fed to the pigs the pig uh waste shit was um then fed into the the forced rhubarb and the cycle went around. They did used to make it. They did did in a long time ago. Used to make a rhubarb beer, but um, that's the triangle. So Yorkshire ham and the traditional way of um, cold smoking um, ham legs is uh, uh, real traditional to Yorkshire. So I grew up with pig, pig, pig liver, pig tongue, uh, pig's head. Um, even my granddad used a pig's tail. Uh, he used to love. Uh, proper pork fat was his preferred choice of cooking. Um, that or butter. There's no, there's no oils or olive oil. It was only the healthy stuff. Um, and then obviously, being English, like I know, I know a lot of people and everyone's like, oh, England's not good at food. They don't really have 
blah, 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 right? England's an amazing melting pot of food. Yes, there's the fish and chip shops and there's a lot of bad food, right? But the sausage and the pork sausage especially is home to every county. Every county's got their version. Um, and there's actually some guys here in Australia, Pacton Park guys, that uh, emulate that. Um, there's the, obviously the pork pie, which is famous from Leicestershire. Um, Morbury pork pies, where it's you know pork min mince in a suet hot pastry, and then the jelly inside. They they leave a hole, and um, from the evaporation of the pork mince inside, they um, do a, a gelatin jelly made from the trotters and all the pork fat and skin, and fill it in. Um, I grew up in a pub, and the butchers across the road used to make fresh pork scratchings, and we'd go and buy them, we'd sell them in the pub, and like a traditional pork scratching that's been cooked in pork fat, dried and then seasoned, is, look, it's it's not going to get probably not even one tick on the um, health rating in Australia, but with a pint of Foster's or a pint of John Smith's, it's, it's, it's English luxury. Um, yeah, so like pork, pork has been like you know I can remember growing up. Some Sunday dinners was all uh, Sunday lunches was always my favourite, and it was quite often you know I grew up in that time where chicken was still they not really figured out how to mass produce chicken, and pig was the the meat of choice really growing up, whether it's through sausages or bacon, which is completely another thing. When when did you start sort of getting involved and considering chefing as a career? Um, well, I, I, was, I think we've talked about this in the past, and I'm like, I never really wanted to be a chef. Um, I grew up in a pub and left. I was actually quite good at soccer and thought I was going to make it and then didn't make it. <laughs> um, I was under 17s, and uh, so I decided to leave school Um early <laughs> and grew up in a pubs wanted to be a, 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 a publican but still being only 16 um, I went to trade school uh, for front of house and I had to part of it one day a week cooking and uh, I used to have to get dressed you know they're dressed up in that classic chef uniform checkered pants white jacket uh, the toggle thing with that bloody neckerchief tall hat white apron and white shoes and i'll be honest with you like growing up in the pub i got called a few names when i was <laughs> dressed in it and it was still like in the early like well early 90s or mid 90s like still like northern England, like it was wasn't seen as a profession um you know there was still there was marco and uh gordon had just like started his own place and there was all these greats like the uh, the rue brothers um and Le manoir and burton race and all these big names nico but in the north of England, it was still, you know, fish and chips. So anyway, I, I had to go and uh, my tutor, John Stevenson, um, in the first uh, school holidays, which is uh, our autumn, sent me down to where his son was working at a place called Warren House in Kingston-Pontems on the edge of London. And I was supposed to go down, I was going for two weeks, first be one week front of house and the second week kitchen. And the old bugger put me straight into the kitchen and after the first day, this memorable thing happened with my head chef and one of my biggest mentors and friends uh, happened. And uh, I, uh, the next day, they off asked me to come into the office, and it was like day two. And you know, like I'm, 
Yeah, I was a bit wild and a bit rough around the edges. And they asked me in the office, I was like, what the fuck? Well, sorry for swearing, but what the fuck have I done? Like, the only time I've been asked to go into an office is usually the principal's office. And that never turned out good. And I'm like, I haven't done And I literally walked in. I was like, what have I done? I haven't done anything. They're like, no, I think you're all right. We're just wondering, we see something in you. Would you like a job? And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? I'm like, and they offered me a stupid amount of money at 17 plus live in and bills paid for and i'm like look i've got to check my my dad's best friend my dad lived in the pub he didn't actually own any of the pubs he just lived above them and worked for his best mate who owned them all his son rob jane ran all the pubs and i used to be like his little lackey and i love the guy like he's like i felt like he was like a big brother and anyway i called him up to see if it was okay and he's like you go for it and whatever you learn you can always bring back to the pubs and that was like that's what I went for. And then I just, like, my first head chef was an ex-Michelin star uh, chef with Burton Ray's, being a head chef and pastry chef for Burton Ray's for nine years, and this was his first head chef gig, and it was an unbelievable learning curve. How did you end up in Australia? Um, well, from London, I moved to uh, Edinburgh, and then whilst my time in Edinburgh, um, I realised it was time to go and work somewhere else. It was coming up like back in those days, like chefs used to do like 18 months, two years, because 18 months, two years was like 10 years in a normal job. <laughs> um, and you always kept on moving on, and, and great head chefs moved you on, especially when you're in that commie junior demi chef, chef party stage. Even even when you got to junior sous, sous chef, like no one would let their head chef go, but you know, um, it was all about a learning curve. And Martin Wishart, um, I'd got offered a job with uh, down at Le Manoir, which Martin had organised, and Mike, my first head chef, and Mike had organised me. Uh, Mark, uh, Martin had organised me to go and work for Charlie Trotter in the US, uh, and I really wanted to go there, and I couldn't get my visa. Um, so there was a phone call from a certain Scottishman, which I won't mention his name, um, to Martin, and I was supposed to come out and work for the Scottish guy and Gary Megan at Phoenix and never, never went. Um, my old man actually, uh, before he took retirement and went to work for his mate, um, worked for Foster's UK. So Australia's always had this connection. Martin, I live with Martin's brother, Gary and Martin and Gary all traveled around Australia. They're like, just go for a holiday. My first head chef, uh, Mike said, mate, don't go to Australia. It's miles away. Just go to Magaluf, lose yourself in Ibiza, come back two weeks, go to Le Manoir. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, so I came out to Australia with the idea of I was just going to be here for three, four months. Met a girl, went to Sydney, came back to Melbourne um, and was skint and then walked through the doors of Vue de Monde in January 2001 and um, haven't been able to return since. <laughs> well your impact has been extraordinary in australia and um with so many venues but what's been probably the real sort of highlights or important moments in your career as you built it um i think it's humans connectivity friendships and connection to producers like my real like there's there's, a, there's obviously everyone talks about food legacies and bits and pieces but it's really 
how amazing the hospitality industry is with and it's not just it's not just the chefs like uh, i listened to an amazing podcast the other day with dan sims and he was talking about you know waiters versus front of house and i've never believed in that like i was a little grumpy thing but it's always been about the customer but it's it's the people that are selling the equipment it is the dry store people it's the delivery guy that you get you know you've seen for four years and you know you might not use that think that there's, there's something so beautiful about our industry of being able to talk to people and have a laugh and a joke and celebrate life that isn't like any other industry i don't think um and i feel blessed and honored and that's the highlight of my career is um having those people in my life and being able to have joy like that but also to now i think now is a stage where there's two well I'm now at Montalto Vineyard um, in a culinary director role, and I'm only there two days a week. And one day is to go in and just be me, right? Now we've this. This it's a remarkable kitchen. It's um, it's there's three kitchens over the estate, uh, and different different people, different skill sets. But there's um, I'm back working with Craig uh, Penglazy, who we worked together back in the day at uh, Circa with, and he's a like. He's 55. They call him granddad, right? They actually call him dad, but when he's away, I call him granddad. And he's just got this beautiful sense of calm. It's great back working with him. Um, but there's two young humans and seeing where, like I'm 44 this year, and I know I look 28 hookers. It's all right, um, but I am 44. <laughs> but Michael, the head chef, Michael Clancy, He's such a beautiful human soul, and the way he cooks of fire uh, in the restaurant, it's it's giving me energy to be better, to try and give him my um, my thought process and how I think about food because it is like I, I do think I do think about seasonality and textures and flavors and but how he's cooking and how he talks with his team. It's actually a beautiful thing to watch and how I was taught of the screaming. And I've, I've still got a little bit of angriness in me uh, when it's tongue. Um, and I don't like that about me, you know. And I watch these young, younger generation of how they are managing, especially in my team. And it's, it's blow away. And then we've got the executive sous chef, Beth Candy, this extroverted, um, live, love of life human that has, has made me change, like, how I'm managing and how and both those those two humans especially have made me want to give more back to the industry and it's not like it was dwindling but it was just it's just great having knowing that the the leaders like everyone complains about the user today there's not enough of them I, I, I disagree I think there's just too many restaurants and we've forgot about human people and how we're training we're just opening more restaurants rather than concentrate on them on on it and there's some bigger restaurants that do really well don't get me wrong but they've just given me life and that's what I'm really proud of. From the outside looking in, um, Pope Jones sort of looked like a, a big shift in the way that you approached your cookery and and produce. It was tell us about a shift and how much you've changed as a cook. And it, was that was that a big moment for you? Um, well, what I'd, what I'd done is like because I took over from Andrew McConnell at Circa. and you know I had to follow like restaurants are all about formats really. If you actually look, break down a menu and how the sequence of service happens and the wine service that all impacts it's it's all about frameworks so i took over from andrew and the framework of how andrew set circa isn't how i cook 
or wanted to cook. So I went through like the van handles, John and Lee the van handle, like absolute um, matriarchs of the industry and just absolute heroes of mine. I actually saw them last week. And they they actually believed in me to say, this is the future of, I think, food. And, you know, Movida had been doing the sharing, but we took a fine dining into this refined dining era with real uh, paddock to plate, nose to tail stuff, right? At high end, like we had two hats. Like I lost three to two hats from Andrew and that was really hard for me to take. I really struggled mentally. Like I didn't know where I was and I was looking at that. The time, and I'm finding my wife, Charlie Gibb, who worked for Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, helped me re-engineer and gear my brain into what I actually really wanted and what I thought food was. Therefore, my own framework and then I needed to build a team that could cook. They didn't, they didn't need to be chefs. They need to be cooks and understand food. And that's what my job was to teach them about seasonality. And between the years of 08 and then we did the refurb 09, by, by the time I left 2010 and I handed the reins to Jake Nicholson, who was running the kitchen. He was he can cook. He understood it. Like He, he knew relationships and these things that I was trying. So what I wanted to do with Pope Joan was, like, the cafe said, the, Melbourne did not need another uh, coffee shop back then. Maybe they did, right? But what I wanted to be, and I've always said this, is I didn't want to be the best in coffee. Back then, I didn't even drink coffee, right? Like, to me, to me, a cafe was a greasy spooner from the UK. You got, like, a big oval plate. And if it wasn't, if it, if you saw white on it, you'd send it back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and if you couldn't drink three mugs of uh, tea that had been sat there since the previous week you know you were weak um so but but what i wanted to do in that scene was i wanted to be and my analogy always was i I don't want to be the best food i don't want to be the best thing but i want to be ian botham the best all-rounder right and also engaging in my my realization i'd started writing my first cookbook then was the thing that drives me more than anything else is community humans connection to humans and learning through food than the history and geography of those things so pope john was about community it wasn't about matt wilkinson or what you put on the plate if if the people bought my beliefs and honesty as did my team as did my business partner you know in the end that 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 did towards the end fizzle out but what we wanted to do was just create so this seasonality so you could be it was a truly seasonal cafe right i still live my life truly seasonal like um no tomatoes and that's what travel is so brilliant about like like my kids get excited about going to queensland in winter because they can have bloody tomatoes like not because they go to the beach you know what i mean like it's it's i'm a weirdo in that way but that's what we did with the cafe and i wanted to add my britishness to it it was something that um i didn't do at circa like there was just small twists on you know offal and pork um, and, uh, you know, we had black pudding. We had the most amazing bacon from Melbourne Pantry, the most amazing black pudding and sausages from Pacton Park. Um, I made my version of Heinz baked beans. Like, And then we had some of the trickery stuff, like some very English things like anchovies on toast. Like I used to do haggis. I did the, like, um, uh, sometimes do toad in the hole or we'd do like Yorkshire puddings with, uh, poached egg and smoked salmon riette. So it was just a change that I wanted to do. And what I realized I created was a community of food, of connecting uh, myself, 
chefs, um, producers, um, customers, consumers, all together. And it was just, it was fun, Huggers. Like, it was so much fun. And then I did the, you know, the, the summer, like, I was able to trial things. And now I don't have my own um, bricks and mortar. I'm a bit, you know, um, it's a loss. And I sometimes feel it because um, there's a respect I have to pay to others because it's their business and not trade on tours or, you know, I am a bit wilder than the average bear. <laughs> and some of the ideas that I would come up with, some people don't like, like think it's a bit not, doesn't sit in their world. But, you know, going back to the summer camp cookout, like I'd, with that, I'd broken up with my business partner. I'd lost a lot of money with Jack Horner. I'd closed down Hams and Bacon and was re-emerging it as the pie shop because I couldn't make it into a little wine bar because the, I didn't have enough money to invest in toilets because I wanted to use the toilets already at Pope Joan and the council wouldn't let me. So I was like, well, what else is missing? And Wari Alda, Belter Galloway, just their person who just started making stopped making pies from, I was like, well, just, just make pies. And my good mate Steve Rogers had just finished with Movida and he needed something to do. So it's like, well, just go make pies in a little shop. And it worked. But then the summer camp cookout was about what do I love doing? Like when I do these events or at home, I love cooking over fire and just winging it. Like it's like most of the events I do, I've literally changed the menu on the spot there and then. <laughs> right. And it, like, I, there is no risk. Like it's like, I call myself a box and I put my, lots of things in that box, but I don't know what could end up happening, <laughs> you know? And I love that. And that summer camp cookout gave me back my expression of, back cooking jakey um mcwilliams is actually down uh well he's actually um the chef at theo's in noosa now beautiful cook and we just cooked together like just so and a front of house guy james like just fun like it was fun oh my god like you know how many times like you go to restaurants and they're just like where's the fun gone like we've just come out of covid well then i know that was a while ago and everyone's like why is it not fun <laughs> um and that's what i loved well, uh, having spent a little bit of time with you, you definitely f sit in that fun category. Um, but but what, what do you love about what you do? Um, I think that the, the love is, like, if, if the, the, the food side of it is Julie Bennett, who's the kitchen garden grower at Montalto, she's growing this most amazing produce. Like, I'm being able to talk to her about growing things and what we can get. Seeing it pulled out that morning being picked washed and I was cooking it just before guests come so it, you know like going back to that formulation of what restaurants are you generally it's prepped and it's prepped for two or three dates it's prepped chilled put into plastic containers popped into the fridge brought out for service the restaurant at montalto is the like the salad is no more than two days old okay usually it's that morning if beans have been picked there is the element of the piazza where they do have to prep a couple of days, but generally, it's a, as a rule, it's only two days. You know, I know some restaurants that prep six, seven days, but for the for the restaurant itself at Montalto, the the the, the it's only open Friday to Monday lunches. It's four courses sharing. It's only that day. Nothing goes into the fridge. No reuse, like zucchini. Like you're cooking right to the to the diet, and that is. It's invigorating the flavor. It's invigorating because of, you know, you might run out. Is it enough? But it's invigorating more because of flavor. And that flavor from just picked, beautiful, grown, 
literally furthest away is at 900 meters. And that day from soil that you know that is healthy and smells great, like I'm already winning. That's what I love about cooking, that freshness of vegetable, of, of like killing. Like I, I, I've been part of a lot of being able to kill animals, so I understand. And it might sound weird, but taking the heart out of a just killed animal, realizing that it's at body temperature, it's warm, and being able to just quickly slice it, marinate it, and put it over a little grill and taste it and go, wow. Like, I, I know freshness, and that's that's what I really love about cooking. Like, um, And then, then there's the other side with because I was 16 at a young age, and this is one of the hard things going into street barbecue, what I didn't realize, I was in hospitality, but as, especially chefs, we're so used to um, having a target and achieving it straight away there and then, and if there's a problem, you can rectify it there and then. There's no waiting. <laughs> in selling a product, having it on a shelf, the time it takes, it is completely, it's it's a whole new mind game and ball game for me. And like uh, like barbecues galore is now stocking at street barbecue, but the seven rubs they always they've only taken three rubs. It took six months to get the deal, right? And I'm here going, well, what's wrong? If you don't like it, like I'll come, I'll cook for you, I'll cook at every barbecue store if you want. What do you want from me to get this over the line? Because I'm used to uh, success every day. And you know, think about it as a chef, an order comes in. And if you're an all-day place, it's even worse. But traditionally, 12 till 3 for lunch, you achieve your goals. And then you've got to um, re-prep or retide yourself up to redo your goals for a night time. Um, I would have hated to have been worked at Cumulus. Saying that, Pope Jam was pretty bad because sometimes we were 7 in the morning till um, 9 at night um, and all-day eating. Like, you... You're waiting, and you, you you achieve your goals, and that that's that's now my new goal, and something I've got to figure out. Um, how do I uh, how do I calm down with the res- non results? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Matt, as always, it's an absolute pleasure catching up with you. Um, please keep in touch, and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks for having me on, bud. This is the crackling. A Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.